Lord, what is the thing that you want to give birth to in our souls this Advent season? Our hearts are open and our Bibles are open and we invite you to speak, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we begin a new uh, four-part sermon series that will take us uh, through the month of December, through the Advent season, and all the way up to Christmas Eve. And the series is called, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. In this series, we will be exploring the, was that a yay? Did I hear that? (laughs) I'm sure you were all about to say that, but we're going to be exploring the Christmas story from the perspective of Mary, the mother of Jesus, looking at four key moments in her life from the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. And uh, in case you're wondering, those of you who have been around for a while have been accustomed to my sometimes dressing up as biblical characters and doing first-person narratives, I will not be dressing up as Mary during this sermon series. (laughs) I think that's applause of gratitude, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) Well, before we go on, I do just want to mention a couple of really worthwhile resources, and and we'll send these out to to you in the e-news, so you don't have to jot them down right now. A couple of really solid scripture studies. One is called The Christmas Experience, the video series by Kyle Eidelman, you might consider. There's also a book by Scott McKnight that's called The Real Mary, uh, two good, solid uh, studies of scripture. And a couple of really solid works of storytelling that stay really close to the biblical narrative. One of those is the, the classic by Marjorie Holmes that's called Two from Galilee. And the other is the movie, The Nativity Story, Uh, which is really charming and well done. It might be a great way to start uh, preparing your heart for this series. So why focus on Mary and on her role in the story of Jesus' birth? Well, there are two primary reasons. First, we're focusing on Mary to reclaim the historical Mary from the legends that have grown up around her. I'm sure... uh, If you see movies at all, you're accustomed to seeing on some movies in the middle of the the title credits, a a screen that says a true story. And in that, you know that they sought to be as faithful as they could to the facts. Then some of you have certainly seen movies that say based on a true story. And that means we've tried to keep the main things in, in place, but we've taken some liberties in a few places. And then some of you have seen the screen that says inspired by a true story, which basically means the true story was just the jumping off point for imaginative fabrication and conjecture uh, that never really happened in history. Well, as evangelicals within the Protestant tradition, we are committed to preaching and teaching the true story, the historical facts that have been handed down to us faithfully in the pages of Scripture. But in the centuries following the life of Mary, as you're probably aware, versions of Mary's life shifted from history to historical fiction, to fiction, and in some cases, outright fabrication. Within 300 years of her life, she was supplied with a whole host of details about her life that the scriptures don't give us, including a miraculous birth of her own, a childhood lived in the temple in Jerusalem, a sinless life, a betrothal to an old widower named Joseph that came about through a drawing of lots, and a celibate marriage until the day of her death. 
And then after the death of Jesus, we find out through these legends that she was actually the first person that Jesus uh, appeared to uh, after he rose from the dead and before all of the other events that are recorded at the end of the Gospels. And then at the end of her own life, she is raised bodily to heaven, possibly before she dies, maybe right after she dies. And when she goes to heaven, she is crowned by the Father and the Son as the Queen of Heaven, and she sits down and takes her place next to Jesus on his throne, where she functions in the role of co-redeemer. Now, all of these additional details to the story of Mary are well-intentioned. They're all attempts to try to explain, to try to understand how it was possible for an ordinary, sinful human being in any way possibly to contribute to the physical makeup of the Messiah, who is both fully human and fully divine, but somehow to do that in such a way that he was able to be completely without sin. So the solution that was arrived at by the early church was to conclude that Mary actually wasn't an ordinary sinful human being. And all of the invented details of the story are ways of elevating Mary into a class of her own, to make Mary into a young woman who never sinned, and who as a result of her extraordinary role in bringing Jesus to us, now has an ongoing role in bringing us to Jesus. And she is the mediatrix who stands between us and Jesus the Redeemer. Well, if you're curious about how the story of Mary morphed and expanded and, and how it departs from some of the biblical record, I filmed a short uh, video overview that you might find helpful. I did that just last week, so that's going to be coming out at some point this week. Uh, so just stay tuned for your, uh, your e-news, and we'll let you know how you can access that short overview if you're interested. Well, as a result of all of these efforts to try to eliminate the tension of this mysterious paradox of the Incarnation, and, and as a result, to try to supply Mary with an alternative origin story that alleviates the tension that's there, Mary has shifted away from being someone that we can pattern our lives after. If Mary is perfect, if she's perfectly pure and perfectly pious, then she is only someone that we can learn about, not someone that we can learn from. But the Protestant reformers sought to peel back the additional layers of legend that uh, had clothed Mary after her life and death. They sought to go back to the historical record of the scriptures themselves and invited us to join them in rediscovering this beautiful woman whose name is Mary, who has such a prominent and significant role in the birth narrative of Jesus. The Protestant reformers pointed to Mary as the very first Christian, and they urged the Protestant church to follow her example. So during this series, we want to reclaim the historical Mary as a biblical figure, as a beautiful figure from whom we have much to learn. The second reason we're focusing on Mary is to remind ourselves as a church that women have played and continue to play crucial roles in the life of the church and in the unfolding of redemptive history. Church history has been dominated by men 
That's true for a variety of reasons, but for two reasons specifically. One is the patriarchal societies of the ancient world that are the backdrop of all the events that are recorded for us in Scripture. And the other is the biblical guidelines regarding men serving in roles of leadership in the church that continue to guide and inform the church today. Because of the combination of those things, men are mentioned far more than women in the stories of Scripture. Men figure more prominently than women do across the 20 centuries of church history, and women are less visible in the life of the church today. And all of that has obscured the fact that women of faith have always played a crucial role in the health and effectiveness of the church and in the advance of the gospel. And that women are every bit as important and every bit as gifted as men are. And that certainly is true of this church. I think of some of the women who are part of this church and the incredible, the stunning example that you give to the rest of us of what faith and faithfulness look like. Thank you for that. Focusing on Mary will help remind all of us, not just women, but all of us, that we have so much to learn from our sisters in the faith. So let's turn to the first of these four episodes in Mary's life that we'll be looking at in this sermon series. So would you either pull up or turn to Luke chapter 1? We'll be looking at verses 26 to 38 in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now let me just say, as, as you read these opening two lines in the original, you get a sense of this profound, sweeping, narrowing of time and space. God's messenger, Gabriel, is sent from the vastness of heaven to the nation of Israel, to the region of Galilee, to the tiny town of Nazareth, to the specific person whose name is Mary, who was pledged to be married to another specific person whose name is Joseph. You have this incredible sense of the, the narrowing of God's focus to one specific place and one specific time and one specific group of people for the sake of all places and all times and all peoples. It's, it's breathtaking as you come kind of topple into these opening verses of this section. One other detail here that I think is just important to mention and uh, some of you are aware of this, but that is to be aware that to be pledged, to be betrothed to someone was a much more serious matter than engagement is for us today. Betrothal was a one-year formal engagement that required a divorce to be broken from. It's just, it was just the same as being married to that individual, a lifelong commitment to that person with only two exceptions. You're not living together and you are not having physical relations together. Verse 28, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now this is one of the places where the Protestant view begins to diverge sharply from the Catholic and Orthodox views. In about 380, a man named Jerome translated the scriptures from Greek into Latin. But 
In doing so, he reflected the increasingly elevated view of Mary that surrounded him in the church at that point. So when he got to this passage, he translated it, greetings, you who are full of grace. Jerome's translation became the official version of the Bible for the Catholic Church from that point forward. And soon this line from verse 28 and another line from verse 42, which we'll see next week, were joined together in a prayer to Mary known as the Hail Mary. Now we have the Our Father, which is a prayer to our Father in Heaven, and the Hail Mary, which is a prayer to our Mother in Heaven. And that prayer, the first prayer in the praying of the Rosary, has played a central part in the Catholic Church's prayer ever since. And just in case you've never heard it, this is what it says. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. But this expression, as an earlier translation of the Bible from Greek into Latin clearly showed, doesn't mean full of grace, as though grace were something that Mary pours out to others out of some reservoir of grace that she has. This expression is in the passive verb form. It refers to something that she is receiving, not something that she is bestowing. She is on the receiving end of God's grace, just as each one of us is. Greetings, the angel says. And this could also, it's literally, it means rejoice. And I think that's probably the right way for us to hear this. Rejoice, you who have been graced, would be a great way to translate this. Rejoice, you who have been graced. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, why was she troubled? I think it's easy for us to kind of supply lots of different answers, but I actually think um, the, the rest of the scriptures help clarify the sort of consternation that she was feeling. Mary knew her Bible well enough to know that when someone was described as being favored by God, it often meant that they were being chosen by God to fulfill a particular work for him. Noah, Gideon, Hannah, and David were all described as being favored by God. The angel says, the Lord is with you. And Mary also knew that this was an affirmation that was often made when God was calling someone into a significant role in his redemptive work. It was spoken to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to Jeremiah, to Gideon, to name just a few. So here she is, based on the customs and the practices of the day, probably just 12 or 13 years old, from a relatively poor and undistinguished family in a tiny village in the rural part of the country that's far removed from the capital city of Jerusalem, which was, which was understood to be the center of the nation's spiritual life, and the angel is saying, you have been chosen. For what? Me? Why has he chosen me? And what has he chosen me for? Verse 30, the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and you will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. You have found favor with God. This expression implies two things that seem to be at odds with each other at the same time. So let me see if I can clarify this. 
First, the root word here is exactly the same as the word in the previous greeting. You who have been highly favored or uh, who are the recipient of grace. Grace, as you may know, means unmerited favor. It is generosity from God that isn't earned in any way. It just comes as sheer gift from God. Mary is not a spiritual superwoman elevated above the rest of us and somehow deserving of this role. No one deserves such a role. This comes to her as pure gift. At the same time, finding favor often expressed the idea of, a, of, of an unimportant subject being noticed and delighted in by a king. So it becomes um, synonymous with being pleasing to that king or pleasing to God. When Moses uses this expression in Exodus chapter 33, he uses being pleased and finding favor interchangeably. Moses says, you have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. Well, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. So what might God have seen in Mary that would have been a source of pleasure to him? Well, we don't need to guess about this. There are three things that come through, at least, in these passages of Scripture. And these are not things that earned her the job. Again, nobody could have earned this role. But these are things that made her well qualified for it. First, her heart posture of yieldedness and availability. We'll see this um, opened up for us in just a few verses. Second, her heart of humility. We'll see this much more clearly in the passage that we'll be looking at uh, next week. And then finally, a heart that is immersed in and shaped by the scriptures. We'll see evidence of that also in next week's passage. But before we go on here, the other thing I just want you to notice is that even though this announcement has a note of finality, of something that has already been decided, it is clear that Mary has a genuine choice. This is not being forced upon her. All of the verbs in verses 31 through 35 are in the future tense. These aren't things that have already happened to her. These are things that will happen if Mary agrees. They depend upon her response of faith and of obedience. So then, picking up again, verse 31, and we'll read 32 and 33, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, as someone immersed in the scriptures, these promises would have taken Mary immediately back to the promises that were given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promises that God made to David through the prophet Nathan. That God would establish a kingdom through David's offspring. That he would establish the throne of that kingdom to last forever. And that God would have a relationship with that king where God was the father and the king was the son. All of those things are promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. She also would have thought immediately of Isaiah chapter 9 and the promise of the coming king that was given through the prophet Isaiah, which we heard so beautifully read by the two of you. Thank you. And man, I sure felt for you guys standing up here 
and we were not helping you out, all of us up here sitting like this while you were up here on your own. I love that. That was beautiful. Thank you. And we love that you're here. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Both of those passages would have come immediately to Mary's mind. The promise of David was a thousand years old at this point when Mary is having this encounter with the angel. The promise through Isaiah is 800 years old. And these promises had not yet been fulfilled. They hadn't come to pass yet. In fact, the man who sat on the throne now wasn't even from David's line. Was God saying that this ancient promise was going to be fulfilled through her? Verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. This is the third time in this short story that Mary's virginity is mentioned. Obviously, there is a point being made to, to make sure that we notice that detail. And that's because there have been previous miraculous births in Scripture, such as the conception of Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac, and of Hannah and Elkanah's son Samuel, and others. But all of these occurred in the context of a consummated marriage where the couple was not able to conceive. Not this one. This will be a unique, creative work that falls completely outside of any human participation. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, just to be clear, because there may be a question in your mind about this, this is not meant at all to communicate sexual activity. This is only meant to communicate divine agency. And that comes through from the associations, the biblical associations, that would have come immediately to mind for someone like Mary, who was so familiar with the Jewish scriptures. First, the wording that the angel uses would have brought to mind Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which says that the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Ramenta understood Gabriel's words as a description of a new act of creation that is taking place. As John makes clear in the prologue of his gospel, when he echoes the language of Genesis and he writes, in the beginning was the word. This wording also would have brought to mind the imagery of the Shekinah glory, the cloud descending over the tabernacle, and then again later in, in history, over the temple. The tabernacle, the temple, was understood by the Jewish people to be the place where up until that moment, God had pitched his tent and lived among his people. And now in John's prologue, in verse 14, we're told that um, he came full of grace and truth and pitched his tent in our midst, in human flesh and blood. Then Gabriel gives Mary a sign, a confirmation of this promise that he is speaking to her by giving her tangible evidence of another miracle that God has already performed. Verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. 
Now notice the emphasis here on the word of God. This becomes important as we carry on into the rest of the story. Here is a sign of the trustworthiness of whatever God says. No word from God will ever fail. I think that's a better translation than the more familiar translation, for with God nothing will be impossible. What God speaks, what God promises, God will always bring about. God's word has authority. Literally, it authors reality. It brings it into being. Now, before we look at Mary's answer to God, to the angel, I think it's important for us to stop and think about the the reasons that she might have had for saying no. There's the pain of what people would have thought of her and how they would have responded to her. When she told them what had happened, her family and her fiancé probably would have thought that she was crazy, that she was unhinged. And then when her body began to change, they would have thought that she was corrupt, that she had been unfaithful. For such an offense, Joseph could divorce her, her parents could disown her. There was even a biblical provision for stoning someone who was unfaithful and committed adultery. And think of the loss of her reputation in the community, the shame and the ostracism that surely would come from those to whom she would never have a chance to explain what had actually happened. And think of the other utter disruption of her life from this point forward. At this point, she could only guess what the impact would be on her life. She can only imagine what her yes to God and the hundreds of other yeses that would necessarily follow this yes, how every one of those would cost her, though she wouldn't have known the specifics of what was ahead of her, giving birth in an unfamiliar place surrounded by strangers, receiving a death threat to her son, and having to flee the country and live as refugees in Egypt, and then later having to release her son to his ministry, and then even more painfully to release her son to his death. Even not knowing the specifics of what was ahead of her, she would have known, even at this point, that this calling would be a costly one. With those things in mind, let's listen to Mary's response. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Wow, talk about courage and trust. First, she doesn't doesn't answer with her willingness. She answers with a statement of her understanding of who she is. With a statement of her identity. I am the Lord's servant. Literally, behold the slave of the master. Now, you know the difference between a servant and a slave. A servant still serves as a free person on their own terms. But a slave is somebody who belongs to the person that they serve. The word here in the Greek is not the word for servant. It's the word for slave. I know who I am. I am the Lord's servant, slave. I belong to you. And that then is followed by her statement of acceptance, of willingness, of surrender to the purposes of God in her life. May your word to me be fulfilled. Literally, may it be to me according to the word from you. Mary takes God at his word. Again, you see the the word of God as a repeated theme. And she takes his word to heart. Peeking ahead at the next section in Luke chapter 1, verse 45, this is the thing 
that her relative Elizabeth praises her for above everything else. Verse 45, blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Mary's faith takes the shape of a yes to God's word that comes without any conditions. Life as God's person on God's terms. Not as long as I don't have to move or as long as I get to keep my standard of living or as long as I don't have to do anything that might be costly or sacrificial. Mary models an understanding of faith that has nothing to do with what I want or whether or not life goes on the way I want or whether or not I get my needs met. Just a deep yieldedness to the word of God. I keep circling back around to the insight that God gave me a number of years ago when I was studying and reflecting on this specific passage. And that is about the four stages of growth through which I believe God wants to take every single one of us. It starts with, I'm in it for me. God isn't even part of the picture yet. He's not in the equation. I'm the one who's living my life on my terms for my sake. And then I begin to learn about the love and the care, the presence of God, and about the sacrifice of Jesus, and I move to the second stage. I realize God is in it for me. But it doesn't stop there. Because as I come to know God more, I begin to see God more clearly as the one who is deserving of my worship and of my service. And I shift my perspective again. Now I'm in it for God. But at this stage, I'm still the one determining how and on what terms I'll serve him. There's still another stage, another step that God means to bring all of us to. God intends all of us to come to the final stage, which this verse, which Mary's response captures perfectly. It's the stage at which we say to God, as Mary said to God, may it be to me as you have said, not my will, but your will be done. This core understanding this core response of Mary, because this is who I understand myself to be, one who belongs to, my, to God, this is what I will be about in my life, saying yes to God and living my life for him. That is reflected in our statement of identity and purpose as a church. Jesus is king, what our logo is meant to capture. And we, we are his. We are his people who exist for his kingdom and his glory. Mary understood that. She understood that biblical faith isn't merely giving assent to a few important faith facts that we affirm, and then going on with life on our own terms. It is understanding ourselves as belonging to God and saying yes to his call on our lives without condition. God speaks, we say yes, period. That's what Mary models and that's what Mary's example invites us into. Part of what the Protestants protested was the distorted picture of Mary that grew up around her in the years after her life, of Mary as a spiritual superwoman more like her son than like the rest of humanity. The Protestant reformers disagreed with that perspective. Martin Luther challenged the legendary versions of Mary as a woman without sin, as not praising her, but slandering her and making an idol of her. I'm convinced that Luke understood the potential for this to happen. So as he was gathering together the stories that he had 
uh, recorded about uh, things that had taken place in the life and ministry of Jesus. He made a point to include a specific brief exchange that took place between Jesus and a woman who was in the crowd. It comes 10 chapters later in the Gospel of Luke. We find this in chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, an exchange that takes place right near the end of Jesus's ministry. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This woman wanted to elevate Mary because of the unique role that she had in redemptive history. But Jesus is quick to correct them. He lifts up Mary's faith, not her role, as a thing that is worthy of remembering about his mother. It is her yes to God that he elevates a posture that we can follow and that we can share. Jesus says, don't idolize my mother. Imitate her. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is the same word that Jesus uses at the start of each of the Beatitudes. It can be translated blessed, fortunate, happy, even merry. Blessed are those, merry are those who hear the word of God and obey it, who are diligent to live by it, who resolve to keep it carefully, who do what God asks of us. It turns out that a, an M-A-R-Y Christmas and an M-E-R-R-Y Christmas come down to the same thing, which is an unconditional yes to God. So what does this mean for us? What will this look like for us? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I was struck by this all over again as I was walking through this passage. There is a sense in which God's word to each of us, his call, his invitation, is the very same as his word to Mary. And that is that he wants to form Christ in us. Thought about that? Listen to these familiar passages from Paul that you know, but they, they can inform a conversation like this one. Paul speaks of the fulfillment of this desire that God would form Christ in us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. What God intends to do in us is the same thing, essentially, that he desired to do in Mary, to form Christ. And his desire is that we would respond to that invitation just as Mary did. To say to God, I know who I am. Behold, the slave of the master. And I will gladly, willingly, Say yes to what you desire to do in and through me. May it be to me as you, as you have said. May your word to me be fulfilled. Faith is our yes to God's invitation to be bearers of Christ in this world. That means that each of us has to work through the same objections that Mary had to work through. Is all of this for real? What will people think? What will it cost me to say yes? 
And it means we also need to come to a place where we make room for him in our heart, and then we invite him in. We open the door to him, as is captured so beautifully in the line in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, where God says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Have you wrestled through your objections? Have you thrown wide open the door of your soul? Have you invited him to form Christ in you? If you are not a follower of Christ and you are wrestling with the claims of Christianity, every month we have a conversation about Christianity that is designed just for you. These are intended to be a a really safe place where you can learn more about what the Bible says it means to become a follower of Christ and what the claims are that are made about who Jesus is and why he came and why he died. And and also a a place in a a safe setting to talk through your hesitations or your objections, the things that make it difficult for you to take a next step towards Christ. These are incredibly rich conversations. These are among my very favorite moments um, of what I get to do as a pastor. Our next one is coming up this coming Wednesday at 7 p.m. at the Town and Gown Restaurant right down the hill. We're going to have a table down on the first floor, and you are welcome to come and be part of that if you are somebody who is wrestling through what it might mean to become a follower of Christ. Or if you're somebody who is a follower of Christ, but you have a friend that you want to bring with you who is asking some of those questions, you'd be welcome to come and be part of that as well. If you are a follower of Christ, then faith means following up that first and foundational yes with a hundred other yeses that necessarily follow. Yeses that that first yes implies. To realigning our allegiances. To turning over control of our lives to a new master. To saying yes to being an active and contributing part of the church family. Yes to loving your neighbor. Yes to building relationships with non-Christians and sharing your faith. Yes to doing good and seeking justice out in the world. Yes to praying. Yes to giving. Yes to forgiving. Yes to the ongoing work of the Spirit in you to form Christ. Jesus says, Merry are those who hear the word of God and obey. What is the yes that God is inviting you to say to him. Our worship team comes up to lead us in our closing song. Would you just ponder that for a moment? What is the yes that God is inviting you to say to him?